Hello, boys. Hey, gents. What's happening? I missed you guys. We missed you, too. We missed you so much, me and Bill just talked for an hour without you. Did you really? Well, no, it was, only, it was only 20 minutes. <laughs> I hope you said nice things. Oh, we no. did. We didn't, even, we didn't even mention you. <laughs> that's, that's the way to say nice things. Two D, the flat frontier. These are the voyages of the Pancake Enterprise. Its rotoscoped mission to repeat the same animation and music, to transcend the limitations of 70s animation, to go boldly where no cartoon has gone before. Toon Trek, based upon Star Trek, created by Gene Roddenberry. Starring. Paul Spataro. Also starring Dave Pascarella. With Bill Robinson and Andrew Leyland as Andy. Production assistants J. David Wheater. Hello, everybody, and welcome to. I don't know the name of this show yet. <laughs> I'm TBD. To be decided. Yes, Star Trek TBD. <laughs> Which sounds like a sexually transmitted disease. Oh no, that's the other show. <laughs> I'm Torellian disease. And as oh, you can oh. hear behind me, there is Dr. Bill Robinson. Yes, I have just diagnosed someone with TBD, Torellian butt disease. Sir yeah, Andrew Jim. Leyland. I'm a podcaster, not a doctor. And David Pascarella Esquire. Hey, I'm just here to hang out with my pallies and have a few. You, know, you I sound can't, like Vic Fontaine, then. <laughs> I can't believe that not one of you opened up with, Oh, baby! <laughs> it's a but, mellow crowd here. Yeah, I guess so. Because uh, you're an hour and a half later than normal. You've all woke up and chilled out a little bit. We're following mm. up our comprehensive view of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. We decided we didn't want to break up the band just yet, so we decided we were going to cover Star Trek the Animated Series. And no, we are not covering Lower Decks, because Andy wouldn't do that with us if we asked him to. Oh, I would, but it wouldn't be an uplifting show. We are instead doing the uh, animated series that started... the Well, the first episode aired on September 8th, 1973. Wow. Mm. Wait... I think I have a name. Listen to the prophets ramble on. It's a bit long. And, and we'll have Led Zeppelin do the theme song. Hey, you see where I was going with that. So the animated series kind of, you know, it, I was going to say it came on the heels of the original series, but it really didn't. I mean, we, we had quite a gap in between, and the original series, you know, had already proven to be popular in syndication and, you know, was much more popular at this point than it was when it originally aired. And they decided to do an animated series, and I'm not really quite sure why they decided to do an animated series as opposed to reviving a live-action series. I know. So you should inform us. Oh, I will do just that. Um, Dorothy Fontana gave an interview just shortly before she died on a podcast I was listening to, and I would give credit to that podcast if I could remember which one it was. It may have been or comic reflections or something like that and she well it's, it's something that's available on the internet so we yeah, narrowed can, it down you can go and you can go and find it and she was basically saying that the animated series came about because as you have pointed out the original star trek was at this point more popular than it had been when it was on original erin and roddenberry was already deep into negotiations for continuing the show in some form at the time, those plans were for a continuation of a television series as Paramount launched their own network. And as we all know, those plans changed and evolved over time. The animated series came about because NBC had also expressed an interest in bringing the show back in some form. Because, again, they had noticed that it was now more popular in syndication than it had been when it was originally on the earth. And they came to this agreement that they would do an animated series. What was in this for Roddenberry was, if a show is in production, it is much easier to get licensing deals, merchandise deals, and 
to show potential finances of a continuation that the show has legs than it is to show them a product that's been off the earth for five years. So the animated series was basically there just to keep the Star Trek name alive in production and in the public eye so Roddenberry could go to Paramount armed with that information in his back pocket. However, he wasn't interested in overseeing the animated series because what a lot of people don't realize is that for a writer, there is no difference between working on animated and working in live action. There's still hard work as a writer to churn out this many scripts on a regular basis. So Fontana said he turned over the day to day running of the show to her and she was essentially the showrunner for the animated Star Trek. And that's how the animated series came to be. All right, so we will see you next time when we cover an episode. Oh. <laughs> no, no, we'll do a little bit more now. Uh, but I think before we get to talking about this specific episode, we should talk about uh, when we when we watched this show uh, and, you know, just general thoughts about it. Because I would tell you, I did not watch this in 1973, even though uh, at that point I would have been like in the prime age to watch it. I still really had not been hooked on Star Trek at all at that point, so I didn't have a lot of interest in it. Uh, it's something I watched much, much later. I, I don't remember if I saw any of it on Nickelodeon because I didn't have cable for quite a while, and by the time I had cable, I may have seen it. I know I saw a couple of episodes on VHS tape, uh, but you know I had very little, you know, very little exposure to it until it came out on DVD, and. To be totally honest, I watched it when it came out on DVD. Some of the episodes made more of an impression on me than others. Some of them I really don't remember at all. Uh, so it's going to almost be as if I'm experiencing them for the first time as we cover them. Uh, and I overall liked it. I can't say I loved it. We'll see how I do as we go through the episodes. How about you guys? Uh, I don't remember seeing this at all until the early 1990s. <laughs> when the BBC picked up the package to show Next Generation Voyager and Deep Space Nine, they also got rerun rights to the old shows. And they threw this on like early morning, like 7.30 in a morning or something like that. And I saw a couple of episodes and wasn't overly impressed. But I came to it via picking up Alan Dean Foster's novelizations of the episodes, where what he does with them, if you remember James Bleach's adaptations of the original show he did them as short story anthologies so each episode was it's basically its own short story in any given book what dean foster did was he basically took three scripts from the show and he tied them all together to make one cohesive novel so the first novel is the first three episodes of the series but he weaves them together in such a way as to tell a complete story and that's how i came to the show through those novelizations so it's just you and I on the show this week, Andy. No, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> I, I. Oh, go ahead, Dave. Oh, okay. Uh, I uh, never saw these when they aired, as I was but a year and a half old. I knew they existed because a neighbor had given me years later. It was a set of, I think, it was supposed to be a set of four paperback books, and it was listed like logs one to one through three three through six something like that and it had the animation art style on the covers of the books but i was missing the first book and i never read it i didn't get to see these until i think they were on netflix or something and it was after 2010 so that's my history with it i knew it was out there but didn't see it until relatively recently um I remember I did not I don't think I saw these first run because I would have been five, four or five. So I probably saw them either in, you know, because I I think cartoons back then might have, you know, kept things on for a few extra years, even though, you know, they would just show it in repeats or be moved to the afternoon, you know, just to just to fill in a block for kids when they got home from school. So I remember seeing this these as a ute um did you just say ute what's a ute <laughs> so i do remember these i don't think i've seen all of them some of them do stick out um push them back in yeah ah, like like this one i remember the next one we're gonna see the other one with um like magic that is one of the you know 
supposedly a character may or may not be uh, the mythical Lucifer or, you know, the biblical Lucifer. Um, things like that, that. So I do have some memory. I have not watched them since that time way back. I, I haven't watched them on, on Netflix or anything. I own a, a DVD set copy of these as well because it was like on sales, sale one day at Best Buy. I'm like, ooh, I got to buy that. And I've never watched it like many things. I buy and never watch. So I'm interested um, to see what my memories are and which ones I've seen and which ones I haven't. I would say overall, just to, to give a basic impression, because I don't want to really repeat ourselves every episode, uh, the animation style is very rudimentary. It's, mm. it's it's maybe a step up from you know a, a, not even a big step up. It's a step up from the Grant Ray Lawrence Marvel cartoons. Uh, you know, there's a lot of scenes I'm watching them, and you know, it's it's a static image, and you know, only the uh, the person who's speaking's mouth and eyes are moving a little bit, and then there's you know something on the computer screen behind him that's blinking, but otherwise it's it's totally you know just nothing going on in the image uh so it is it is a very you know not not a very imaginative animation style so i really don't want to critique the episodes based on that alone uh and i think uh bill you're going to have some commentary on this the score you know it suffers a little from the fact that you know we're just going to hear the same music over and over again uh, you know, it, 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 there is there is no scoring of the episodes. Just, you know, you have this music to work with, and that's what you're going to hear. End of story. Yeah, because I believe, like we had talked prior, that we heard this on like the the Tarzan Batman Hour, the the intense music, you know, the like, well, I, I love that the opening theme is the opening theme yes. of the original show, but the notes are higher, so they don't get done for copyright. Mm. <laughs> it's like they just went one note up on the scale. I went, that'll do. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I'm not. So, just with the first episode here, which we'll get into in a second. So, even though the animation's a little, you know, as Andy would say, that's ah, a bit crap. And the music's repetitive. You might think, oh, wow, you guys are just going to poop all over this. Mm, no, because no. I think this is, like, this first episode, there's, like, I, I had a little bit of emotion at the end of it, um, which I guess we'll save until we get to a review of the episode. Well, the other thing, I and think, I, and, oh, sorry, go ahead, Andy. I was just going to, I think, overall, the animated series is of a higher quality, storytelling-wise, than the third season of the live-action show. Well, because not... if you close your eyes, it's it's still Star Trek. Well, because you're not in the animated show, even though it's you know a little you know cheesy on the a- animation, you're not held to filming constraints of the times. There was no CGI. This is the CGI. This is the CGI. Budgetary constraint. There is a budgetary constraint in this episode that really irked me. Because you're like, why, why, why is that even an issue in animation? Which one is that? The well, I was going to wait till the episode, but it's the belts. Was it difficult? Oh to yeah, spacesuits. I guess they didn't want to. Well, it was. Well, it was I cheaper they... to draw a squiggling line in a belt than it was an entire spacesuit around. I them. think they did the belts to make it easier for children to identify who's who. Mm, that's true. That probably makes more sense. Yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily a budgetary thing, but uh, I guess we should get into this oh you know i actually one 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 thing i did want to mention before we get into the episode is they did apparently (laughs) go a little bit cheap on the voice uh actors uh and that had two two ramifications as far as i know because scotty does everything yeah well that's that's the second (laughs) one i was gonna get to that's the second point I was going to get to. Uh, the first one is originally, and I saw this on the documentary that's uh, on the DVD set. Uh, no, actually, no, I don't remember. It wasn't on that. I heard it somewhere else, and I don't remember where. So totally forget everything I said about where I heard it. But I did hear this, uh, and I cannot tell you if it's absolutely true, but I believe it to be, is that they originally signed, uh, you know, William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, and uh, DeForest Kelly. And they were content to do that. 
and then move on. Or actually, and James Doohan, they did hire him also. Uh, and that Leonard Nimoy apparently stepped up and was not happy with the other actors who were not getting parts quite as well as they were anyway, were being left out. And he apparently let out the cry of racism. Uh, you know, you don't have any, you know, it's just, you know, four white men, that's it. And then uh, Paramount said, okay, you know, they'll hire Nichelle Nichols and, and George Takei and Walt. I don't even know, did they hire Walter Koenig? Is he on this? No, Walter Koenig's not on this. I didn't hear that he cried out that it was racism. I heard that he just said, I'm not doing it without them. They were there at the beginning, they deserve to be here now. That, it may be apocryphal that it developed into that with the current, you know, uh, social awareness that exists. The story I heard is from someone else's mouth, as opposed to Leonard Nimoy's or you know somebody from Paramount. Well, so it I, may or may not I be don't true. think I've never heard it from Nimoy. I've heard that from Takai, and it is basically that's how he said it. He said him and Nichols were contracted to do the animated show, and Nimoy said, "Well, if you don't bring those two in, I'm not doing it." And they knew that if they didn't have Nimoy, they didn't have a show. So, yeah, so that, you know, I, I give him credit, whether, whatever his reason was, whether he was just trying to help his friends or whether he, you know, saw it as a social oblig obligation. Either way, I, I think I'm pretty uh, impressed with, you know, how he, how he viewed this and how he went forward with it. Uh, but what you mentioned about uh, James Doohan doing all, all the voices. Uh, <coughs> You know, they, they talk about it like, oh, well, Jimmy Doohan was such a, a master of voices uh, that, you know, it was no big deal. Honestly, I think it's terrible. <laughs> I think the voices he does, it's like, I, I don't hear a lot of nuance to them. I don't... No, it's it's always clearly Jimmy Doohan. You know, and, and I don't blame him necessarily, because, you know, why should he turn down the paycheck? Because I'm yeah, sure he got extra for doing that. Well, it's something like I've somebody somewhere, it may have been Mark Hamill, it may have been somebody else, somebody somewhere has said, if you're contracted to do an animated show, you can do as many as three voices per episode under that contract. But if you do any more than that, you get more money. So you don't really blame Jimmy Doohan for just going, yeah, I'll voice Mr. Kyle as well as Scott, as well as those two aliens. Ka-ching! Yeah, exactly. But I do think that, that you know, the budgetary constraint there did take take something away from the show and and i do think actually even the voice actors uh you know i'm thinking these these guys are used to live action and sitting in a chair doing the voices they don't sound quite as natural and it may be that they it may be the first point that they're just not used to doing animated voices and it may be i'm wondering if they recorded their scenes separately so there is you know, there there is there's a disconnect between one voice talking to the other. I is this was this the first episode recorded? Uh, that I don't know. Because apparently, for the first episode, they were all in the same room together, because that was good publicity and it's where they did all the promotion and everything. And then subsequent to that, you are correct; they were never together to do the voiceovers. Shatner talked in one of his autobiographies about how he would be on the road doing a play. And in between act breaks or whatever, he would go into his dressing room and record his his dialogue into a tape recorder that he would then send off. How analog is that? He'd record <laughs> it into a tape recorder and send the tape to the studio. At least he wasn't calling it on, in on the phone. Hey! <laughs> no, but Jimmy Doohan doing extra voices is... I mean, he did that in the original series, too. I mean, he, yes, did, he did. Uh, often the, a computer voice... <clears throat> Yeah. Um, like, I believe he was the M5, I think. Or at least the uh, Gary Sevens computer. I think yeah, that's he different, though. Devices. I don't no. think it says in your face. Yeah. Yeah, it's not as noticeable as when he's doing episodes where Scotty's talking to Jimmy Doo and doing another voice. <laughs> but Nichelle, Nichelle Nichols does double duty every now and again, but it's it's primarily Majel Barrett as well, isn't it? She yeah. pretty much does the voice of every other female. And that, that doesn't stand out as much to me. Maybe it's because there's it less not? female characters, or maybe it's mm. just because she did a better job with it. I'm not sure. Maybe. So one more thing about James Doohan. So I years ago when I was in the service, I read a well, I read I listened to a audio book for a Star Trek story that was Scotty centric. James Doohan did all the voices, even the women. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so. And how did that work out for him? Uh, yeah, uh, he got him a good paycheck, probably. You know, yeah, he got paid. <laughs> so I was, but I was kind of like, okay. So he's like, almost like he was a Monty Python skit. 
Oh, hello, Scotty. And Scott will still be there. He's very nice boy. Um, also that Walter Cook, Walter Kading, I believe, does not appear in the series, but he did write an episode at least. He did. He wrote a wonderful episode with massive Spock. But we'll get them. <laughs> yeah. All right. So for now, we'll do Beyond the Farthest Star, which is season one, episode one, directed by Hal Sutherland, written by Samuel Peoples. Is anybody familiar with Sam- Samuel Peoples? He directed Where No Man Has Gone Before, the second pilot for Star Trek. Okay. So he has some Star Trek cred. The plot is as... Oh, just uh, once again, it aired on September 8th, 1973. Uh, the plot is that while exploring on the outermost rim of the galaxy, the Federation starship Enterprise is pulled into the orbit of a dead star. Trapped there, the crew discovers that there is a massive, derelict, three-million-year-old pod ship trapped with them as well. Captain Kirk beams aboard the huge... Three hundred million. Yes, I see. I'm I'm like Dr. Evil now. (laughs) Three million. (laughs) Yes, you're right. Three hundred million. Excuse me. But once you get into the millions, who cares? Uh, Captain Kirk Kirk beams aboard the huge starship with a boarding party that includes First Officer Spock, Chief Medical Officer Dr. McCoy, and Chief Engineer Scott. This way, if they get killed, none of the main (laughs) people in charge are still alive. Where they learn it was once home to an insectoid race. They also learn from a pre-recorded message that the ship had become almost completely controlled by a malevolent entity seeking to escape the dead sun and travel to other worlds. The ship's crew created an isolated chamber that the entity did not control and from there recorded the message and then had their ship self-destruct rather than let it be used by the entity. The entity begins to pierce into the isolated chamber where the Enterprise party is and beams back with them. Infiltrating the workings of the ship, it disables the self-destruct mechanism, but Spock has placed the navigation console inside a static shield so it cannot steer the ship. Instead, it uses the ship's systems to threaten the crew's lives and thereby coerce Kirk to navigate the ship according to its orders. Kirk flies the Enterprise towards the dead star in what appears to be a suicide run, but in actuality it is a slingshot maneuver for escaping its massive gravity. The entity believes the ship will crash and be destroyed, and so flees, with the Enterprise successfully escaping both it and the Dead Star. So lonely. So lonely. It's old. I I mean, just watching this episode, I, I thought it really did a good job of catering to the audience that they really believed would be watching it. They they have you know the the simple animation and all of that. But the story, as as you mentioned, Andy, it's you know probably superior to anything we saw in the third season, or at least as good as any of the best episodes from the third season, certainly. What? You didn't like that body-switching one? Jeez. I love that body-switching <laughs> one. Turnabout Intruder is a tour de force <laughs> performance from William Shatner. I will brook no argument. That was the, last, that was the only episode I had not seen until about five, five to ten years ago. Love it was the only one, one I'd never seen. It's brilliant. But back to this episode. Yes. Yeah, I think this is this is very much on a par with like a mid-range second season show. It's it's the Omega Glory or Patterns of Force. It's something we've seen quite a lot of times before, but this that is does almost, not make it in any way unenjoyable. This is almost a wolf in the fold where you have a malevolent yeah. entity that takes over the Enterprise, but with, on, with Charlie X tacked on at the end. Oh, that yeah yeah. The, whereas, yeah. yeah, this is more you feel. You almost have a twinge of sister sadness for the entity. I mean, if you were trapped, oh, like, it's more than a twinge. By the end, oh, I think it's very how sad. Long, like this, this thing may have not been malevolent. It may have just gone insane for being trapped there for God knows how many millions or hundreds of millions of years. It could just. I mean, it may have not been evil to start, but. You know, and it may be just, just misunderstood. I, yeah, I'm, I mean, I know that sounds like, oh, we need to help. Yeah, it did try to kill everybody, but it could just be batshit crazy. Yeah, but isn't that what Star Trek's about? Forgiveness of your enemy. No, it's it's about leaving them stuck in, on a dead planet. 
for all eternity. All right, we're out. Come on, let's go keep mapping these planets. Yeah, see, that's one of my problems with Discovery, just the casual disregard for human life. They'll just blanketly kill people, whereas the original show, like this, this is a cartoon episode designed for Saturday morning TV. It heard over here at five on a Saturday afternoon, but it's the same kind of thing, where they're basically, the ending is quite tragic in many ways. Mm-hmm. But, so ultimately, I feel like if the entity had actually thought out, and it certainly had plenty of time to think things out, if it had just thought out how it would deal with people if they came to it, it probably could have been rescued. But if you hadn't seen or talked to anybody except yourself, I mean, for millions of years, would you even remember how to speak? I don't know, but like, like if we don't podcast, if we don't podcast for like a month, I start with, obey me! Obey me! (laughs) You'll like that when we do podcast. Yeah. At oh, least it's sorry. a step up from kill you all. Kill you all. Die, no. die. <laughs> sorry. It, it just kills me that Winnie the Pooh, or that uh, Piglet was going to kill everybody yeah. on, on, on the Enterprise. Yeah. I think one of the nice things about this is it, it demonstrates the, both the limitations and the enhancements of doing this in animation. The shots of the Enterprise coming across the various different starships and then the shots of the crew going into the bowels of the starship are really good. The backgrounds and everything are really well done. It's a scale that the original show couldn't have met. And then you'll go to the bridge animation that is really cheesy, just using the same shots over and over again. And for no reason whatsoever, suddenly Uhura will disappear from her seat Mm-hmm. And then she'll be back there. <laughs> there's, there's all these things that are going to be showing up more and more. One of the things I did notice—I don't know if I've ever noticed this before—the Enterprise now has two bridges, um, two elevators. Um, I had it was in Rathacon, and I think yeah, yeah, it's in the motion picture. Yeah, but in but the I, original show, they only no. had one turbo left, whereas here right. they've got one at the side of the view screen as well. Hmm. I don't know if we ever saw the one at the side of the view screen. I'm trying to think of an episode where they walk up and stand in front of the, by the view screen. It only happened a few times. Mm. I just thought it was interesting that one of the criticisms, apparently, in the world of Star Trek by David Gerald, people would say, well, if something happens to that turbo lift, how did they get off the bridge? <laughs> and it seemed to me that the easy transport. answer was there is a trap door. Well, there's a transporter, yes, but there is also a trap door just on the floor somewhere that they can open and leave oh, yeah. a jail tube. Well, that seems to me the logical thing. Almost every space, like when I was on, on, on a ship, like we had our normal door that we came through on one side of our workspace, but we had an escape hatch that went all the way to the top deck to get for us to, because we were in the, my, my, my battle station, my general quarter station was in the bowels of the ship, three decks down. So I would go through this and I would go up through other spaces and then go out, out to the outside of the ship. So yeah, I mean, you would think there would be some other auxiliary exit that's not easily visible on the bridge. Yeah, it just makes more sense. I mean, I suppose they were arguing maybe the turbo lift wasn't large enough to contain everyone on the bridge at once. So if they had to evacuate in one go, having two lifts makes more sense. So, all right. Yeah. I just thought that was interesting. I'd never noticed that. I thought that was an addition as of Star Trek, the motion picture, that the bridge had two turbo lifts. Well, there's, also, some, not. there's also something in this episode that we won't, won't even be seen in the rest of the a- animated and that's the bridge security system thingy that comes down and mm. shooting lasers at people. The kryptonite lasers. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I also like seeing uh, Kyle again, Transporter Chief Kyle. That was a nice tell. Are, are we sure that wasn't the Mirror Universe Kyle because he had a goatee? But well, he only he, had a mustache here. I thought he had a goatee too. But but he would have that in, uh, in Wrath of Khan. He would have yeah. a mustache. So it was nice to see Kyle again, even though it was Jimmy Doobat. Does Kyle die in Wrath of Khan? No, he does not. He is one of the people who... Khan just dumps the crew of Reliant on SETI Alpha 5. And mm. at the end, remember, Captain Lloyd, right. Star Day, the Enterprise is off to pick up the survivors of blah, 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 blah. Hmm. Although I don't recall if we've ever seen him or heard of him again in external media, but we may have done. The actual animation of the bridge is really cool. And I think the actual animation of the characters is really cool as well. You know, it's it's quite clear which one is which. From very limited, simplistic drawings, it's clear which one's Kurt and which one's Spark, and so on and so forth. Yeah, they I think the, right, the animation. Yeah, 
yeah, it's re- very good. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. The the actual character designs are brilliant. I yeah, love I would, the animation. I would agree with that. What was that, Dave? I'm sorry. I love the animation. I mean, you can compare it to some of the modern stuff done today from DC and even Marvel, and it's like the the style is classic. You can recognize everyone. It's serviceable. I think the art is great. See, I think the character models are great. I think the actual animation is weak. Yeah, and the constant reuse of the same footage gets worrying just in this one episode. God knows how we're going to feel about it 21 episodes down the line. <laughs> but now, the, now, the Enterprise. Hold on. Uh, I was just going to ask, does anyone know the shots of the Enterprise, are they rotoscoped? Because they're incredibly faithful to the old show. Don't know. I haven't seen anything about how they produced that, so I wouldn't be shocked because rotoscope is not an expensive process, at least as far as I understand it. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if they went because it's, it's not only is it not expensive, but it, it creates a fairly high quality image. Mm. It's just the shots of the Enterprise in orbit around the planet. There's so much a higher level of animation than the other stuff that I thought that looked like they'd rotoscoped it from the show. I don't know if that's true. It just—it's just I thought I felt that was a step up from the the, the animation of the characters. Yeah, I, I would think that that's very possible. That that's the way they did it. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the uh, the plot here, because you know we, we're going into a lot of things about the technicalities and the production values and that type of thing. But I think that our, our overall focus on this particular show is probably going to you know, lean more on the plots and, and their impact on the overall uh, continuity and, and canon of Star Trek and that type of thing. And, you know, understanding that this is a 22-minute episode and there's only so much you can do with it, uh, I think we should expand beyond that. I think we should be looking at, you know, really, you know, taking it very, very seriously and saying if it is in canon, you know, how does it impact the show? How does it impact the characters? Uh, you know, what... In a, in a, if this were somehow real, you know, what what should be done differently, you know, and as always with uh, <laughs> with Star Trek the original series, uh, they should be following up on these uh, these particular uh, <laughs> discoveries that they made instead of just saying, "Woof, well we got by that one, let's move on." Oh, they um, learned nothing. <laughs> I'm sure that evil entity is still out there. Yeah, exactly. But but well, first of all, let's 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 explore that. Is the entity evil? I think it's no. deranged. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there is any evil people in Star Trek. There are antagonists in Star Trek. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I think like I think Garth of Isor was kind of evil. Do you think? No, he was, no I, I don't just think crazy. he was evil. Yeah, I don't think he was evil at all. I think he'd been dealt a bad hand somewhere, and he'd had that one bad day that the Joker's always banging on about, and he snapped. But I don't think he was evil. Insane, definitely. I mean, there's no other reason to kill Yvonne Craig, but he wasn't evil. Well, I think we can, you know, we we can evaluate his motivations differently to an extent, because uh, I, I thought I saw evil in there. But uh, see, I don't think the entity is evil, and I think it is maybe insane. Maybe you know, the the solitude of 300 million years has has worn it down. Uh, but the question would be, can, you know, could it be rehabilitated in some way if they were to make an effort to make contact from a safe distance so that it couldn't yeah you know, i take, I it, take over like like could they drop a drop a warning buoy you know don't approach beyond this point and then contact starfleet and then they send a special contact team yeah, yeah i i'd actually thought about that after the show was over so like how could they come back and try to help this creature you know or would they just be like, yeah, let's just never go there again. Yeah, Not only could away. they, but should they? I think it's, is really where I'm going with it. Well, you know, sh- shouldn't they feel of, like almost a moral their, obligation? Well, it's part of their mandate to seek out new lives and civilizations to boldly go where no man, you know, no one, no no man has gone before. So at this you point, know, there was still no man. Yeah. So this would be part of their their mantra. You yes. would think they would want to do that. Well, because well, you know, they were real quick to set up and go study the um, um, the Guardian of Forever. You know, 
well, well, that's because they had something to gain. Oh, time travel. Well, yeah. well, also, the Guardian of Forever encouraged them to do so, didn't he? He actually yeah, said, true. I have awaited a question. You know, that's a good point, because that entity was sitting on a planet all alone by itself. But yeah, but you know what? It yeah, had but TV. He, he had all it, of his It had TV to watch. to watch. It had all yeah. of time and space to watch. This thing's just watching he had, he had a, all a dead rock. He had all TV to watch, and yeah. he still watched reruns about World War II. <laughs> But you know, we're, we're talking about a, a a culture that they discovered a, a you know a race of people who could influence your thoughts at all, and they quickly put a mandate that no one is allowed to go there under penalty. I think it was under penalty of yes. death. Yes, death penalty. So if you went to Talos, you, we would kill you. Uh, <laughs> you know, and hey, that's go, just go to Talos for and we'll kill you. But go to the Guardian of Forever's planet. That's fine. <laughs> so yeah, we, we, we're gonna we're gonna kill you if you go to this planet where they might put thoughts in your head. But this other thing where you could change the course of history totally for the negative. Yeah, go ahead, have a good time. Yeah, yeah, you, you can go there whatever you want. It's a big donut. Have fun with your life. Let us know when you get back. <laughs> yeah, let us know if you change anything. If we're still here. Yeah. But, you know, I I think I I think the Talosians really got the short end of the stick because. They would have been made way much more money and been one of the richest planets because they would have been the ultimate vacation destination. All right, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? All right, just sit in this this room of rock and lay on this you know lay on this slab and we'll take you to wherever you want to go. You know, people would pay big money to just be able to go anywhere and do anything. At the same time, they could probably extract any information they wanted out of these people by torturing them, but. Man, they missed the boat. That that's why they shut up. That's why they said, Oh, you can't go over by pet by penalty of death. It's too much fun. Yeah, I think they had a uh, influence from the porn industry lobby. <laughs> so but, but you know, on top of that there's also this what appears to be like organic spacecraft that they yeah, that's uh, grown. encountered. It's, it's it's like grown metal. It's 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 like spun. It's it's metal that's been spun by I don't know giant space insects, kind of, right? That's kind of the way it was described by Scotty. But wasn't it much stronger than anything else? Yeah, Something because it like? wasn't forged. It was it was like grown or created. And yet the Enterprise took it out with one shot. <laughs> don't don't they I mean, even left? I, I think we have to assume if we're going to try and put this in in a you know a realistic way. Uh, that Kirk would have submitted his logs of this trip, and that Starfleet would have investigated this stuff further. Yeah, I, I think that's an assumption you can make from a lot of the adventures of the crew of the Enterprise. They submit the reports back to Starfleet, and then Starfleet judges whether it's worth investigating or opening a dialogue with the people, races that they've uncovered. And I think if you were going to do a spin-off series set in the original show, that would be a good one. Okay, send, so wait a minute. Send so, people to the planet of the people who've made their society out of gangsters. Let's go and see what happened to the Nazi planet after Kurt left it. Let's go and see what happened with the apple. Because that's the only one where he really fucks up society by interfering. Everywhere else, he makes it slightly better. Okay, so what what bureaucratic a-hole or what... Um, <laughs> what of which there what, are many. What twist of fate did like the report on Khan... You know, Khan just gets got shuffled lost. down to the bottom. Yeah. Oh, and we forgot to go to study Alpha Five. Yeah, that it one. That one's Com- really. Messed it was up. the Commodore in charge of that department. Yes. No. No. What I think up with that is Kirk sent his report, but there was a glitch in the Wi-Fi, and it just stored it in his drafts, and it never actually got sent. So Khan was right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, because Kirk, Kirk did his bit. He sent his report off. It's not his fault that somebody rebooted the Wi-Fi just as he pressed send. Hey, it's not so, my, my fault that Windows uh, 2051 uh, didn't send out the right of shit. But realistically, what we're doing is we're assuming because of the Wrath of Khan that they never followed up on anything, which we no, don't think, know that. I think, yeah, I think Khan was an aberration. I think the first thing they do upon discovering the Guardian of Forever is send out a team there to do some proper serious investigative research into how the fuck that donut works. And I, I think the reality is that the only reason that uh, that Khan escaped in further review is plot convenience. 
Yeah, because I don't, I, I don't think, I don't think we could have, you know, the, you know, in, in looking back on it, the eugenics wars was a very, very significant event that went on in their history, and to take that and say we have the primary antagonist of the eugenics wars, who now has made, you know, he's been revived and made an attempt to take over a, uh, a, a you know, a starship. Uh, to, to have a coup on a starship, and we, we've managed to exile him to this planet, I can't imagine that there's any level of bureaucracy that would not have followed up on that. I have a theory on that. Is it a demon? A dancing demon? No, something yeah. is right. <laughs> my, my theory is that Kirk actually did not report where Khan was, because if he had reported him, they would have come out there and picked him up. For his crimes ah. against humanity. Well, let's counteract that. Go on, carry on, but I can counteract that. I think Kirk thought he reached an understanding with Khan. Look, I'm going to leave you here on this primitive world. It's a world for you to tame. And I'm just, we're not going to mention this again. I'm giving you a break because somehow I have some kind of respect for you. And it came back to bite him in the ass. Hmm. It makes perfect sense that Kirk would not report it as part of his honour to Khan, like Dave just said. However, if he did do some minor report, because he would have to explain what they found on the Botany Bay, and he would also have to explain how Chekhov knew what the Botany Bay was, given he wasn't on the ship. Although, let's ignore that one. It does say in the dialogue that SETI Alpha 6 exploded, shifting the orbit of the planet. So, bureaucracy being what it is... It may have been well after six months before that paper shuffler got to actually looking at the Khan report. Sent a ship out there and went, SETI Alpha 5 doesn't exist anymore, mate. And they went, oh, all right, then, never mind. And he rubber-stamped that report and they moved on with their lives. That actually makes some sense. Yeah, he would, I mean, they yeah. would have to give some sort of explanation as to what they'd been doing the last however long. You know, he's supposed to submit logs. So I don't know if I you mean, can totally get away with submitting nothing. I mean, I, I know you can leave certain information out. Well, even even at the end of his report, Kirk could have said, it is my recommendation we, we give SETI Alpha 5 a wide berth and just let Khan live on that planet. And we'll worry about him if he ever invents warp technology. Yeah, like, never beam down directly. Beam down a communications panel and then just talk to him. Don't go down there. Yeah, even if you're giving them a wide berth, I don't think that means just pretend they don't exist. It was yeah. one of those uh, things like out of Escape from Planet of the Earth, uh, Planet of the Apes, where the president's like, well, highly unlikely our administration's still going to be in office. Yeah, I think there's a little too much of that in reality. <laughs> just in general and with politicians, it's like, uh, yeah, as long as I don't have to deal with this, it doesn't matter. The kind of show. Nah, he'll never get warp in our lifetime. Don't worry, we'll be out of office. But I, I would also be hesitant to send anybody down to be a liaison to Khan because he's already proven that you know he can turn things around on people. And next thing you know, we'll have hostages down there, and and it'll turn into you know it'll turn even uglier than it was. And he'll have six wives because apparently women forget to be professional when they're around Khan. Well, what was her name, MacGyver's? Yeah, Marla MacGyver's. Madeline LaRue. That's because Khan was dreamy. He was. He was very dreamy. It's the PAX. All right, so now I think we've hit the point where we can <laughs> rate the episode. So I guess I'm going first on this one. Uh, overall, I enjoyed this. I think I'm going to be probably a little bit more lenient on these episodes because they're only 22 <clears throat> minutes. They don't, you know, when when you have one that isn't quite at the same level, it's going to be less cumbersome uh, and less of a, less less of a, an effort to have to sit through it because it's 22 minutes and done. That said, I didn't have any problem sitting through this one. In fact, I sat through it twice to watch it for this and, and enjoyed it both times. Uh, I did see deficiencies, you know, with some of the animation with some of the scoring and all of that but I'm going to leave those off of my ratings I'm going to rate the story the voice acting uh, and just the overall enjoyment of the episodes so I would say this was above average 2.5 being average and I think it was safely above average so I'm going to give it a 3.5 uh, I'm going to give it a solid 2.5 straight in the middle it's, it's, it's fine my issues with it are primarily more that it's not something we've not seen before done in Star Trek, but also from the point of view, it's a very odd episode to lead the series off with. 
I can't think that maybe more troubles, more troubles, or yesteryear would have been a better way to open the show. But overall, yeah, it's not embarrassing. It's nowhere near as bad as some of the third season episodes, and I quite enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed it as well. I like the artwork, and, and as far as the animation, keeping in mind what was being done at the time, I think yeah, it's pretty it was much good. Was it right? It was par for the course. The story was good. Uh, I enjoyed it. I give it a three and three quarters. Um, hmm. Three and three quarters. Hmm. <laughs> does, uh, does it upset you that someone else is kind of taking your shtick, Bill? Uh, I, I was thrown off by that. I'm like, wait, what? That's my deal. Uh, Oops, I really did like it that much. <laughs> <laughs> I will give it... Uh, I, I'm just going to go with three, three, um, I don't know. Should I keep doing piffy things? Yes. Uh, let's see. Uh, mm, uh, wow. I'm, I, 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 you know, I had something. A three, uh, three dead planetoids out of five, out of not city alpha fives for, for the show. Yeah, it, it is a little, we, we have seen it. The uh, I would say the extra point five above average is the the sad sad entity stuck on the planet. Oh, yeah, I, I think that, that added to it that you know that it it had a certain amount of pathos and, and emotional aspect to it that I thought you know you don't typically see in a in a cartoon, mm-hmm. uh, and it had an intelligence level to it that I also feel like you don't typically see in a cartoon, and that's you know I'm I'm going to give it credit for those. Anyway, that's what we thought, but as always we have to wonder. What did Blaine think? So what do you think? Why don't you tell us? Oh, wait, I got to sing again? You mean you've had dance? all this time to come I up with a song, and you've I come up with nothing? I'm not dancing. I'm not playing your tune, buddy. Dance, right. monkey. No, no. It's, a, it's a new show. It's a completely different show. If Bill wants to change the format, Bill can change the format. Sing, what monkey. What? <laughs> Paul, why don't you sing us in? You you sung us in in the last episode I just listened to, listened to Prophet, so... This is in my, in my contract... I didn't think we had a new contract for this show. No, 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 we've got a new contract for this. I am now and, and as. I'm not just having the and anymore. I want and Andrew Leyland as, and I want the full, I'm I'm expecting a pay increase. No more, you're not being introduced anymore? No, 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 this is a spin-off new contract. Hmm. So let's see. It's been a long time since Blaine told us what he thought. Oh, good. This one's animated. Hey, at least I came up with something, unlike the empty bill. The empty bill. So alone. Incoming transmission. Hi, guys. One journey ends and another begins. On September 8th, 1966, most of the world was introduced to Star Trek for the first time. I say most of the world because the Canadian network that picked it up aired the pilot and subsequent episodes one day earlier in the week, this time on September 7th, so it wouldn't conflict with the hockey schedule. This also means that Star Trek and I share a birthday in Canada, but I digress. On September 8th, 1973, Star Trek was reborn in animated form. Unless you lived in LA, where the first episode was preempted because George Takei was running in a local election, and airing the episode would mean giving his opponent the same amount of airtime. LA got it on September 15th. Many people remember the first time they encounter a franchise that means a lot to them. I do not. I wouldn't be born until 1977, and my parents were not Trek fans or sci-fi fans in general. My earliest memories include a Saturday morning lineup on CTV that started with the live-action black-and-white episodes of The Lone Ranger, followed by the animated Lone Ranger, live-action Gilligan's Island, animated Gilligan's Planet, live-action Star Trek, and then ending the day with the animated Star Trek. I was watching these episodes immediately following the original live action since I was too young to remember otherwise. While the first Trek movie I saw was Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, I remember seeing ads for Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan on television while the neighbors were over. I asked where the bald woman was, and the father of the kids next door, Deeb, got excited. And We lived next door to each other for seven years, and this was the only time I saw him get excited. Star Trek was a passion of his and he assumed it must have been a passion for my entire family if the four-year-old missed a character who only existed in the first movie. While none of us could explain how I knew her well enough to be able to sketch her, complete with the nodule on her neck, I was able to have a conversation with Deeb about Star Trek. 
This is a vivid memory because we kept in touch with the family for a few years after we moved, and this was the only time in over a decade that I ever saw the man communicate with anyone under the age of 18 with more than a grunt. I was in the second grade when I decided to grow up to be Spock, to the point that my aunt made myself and several cousins Starfleet costumes for Halloween, and I had to talk her out of making me the captain because I was the oldest participating child. This was evenly mixed with Star Trek the original series on my memories because I always watched the animated series and the original as a pair on Saturday mornings. I guess I'm trying to say that this series means more to me than it does to many of my contemporaries. I'm thrilled that you guys have decided to make your next project and that you've invited me along to continue providing my little messages. Beyond the Farthest Star is a good launch to the series, a pilot written by original pilot writer Sam Peoples. The filmation style is on full display. It often looks cheap, but people who understand animation budgets who estimate numbers are often shocked just by how cheap it actually was. They'll often estimate that it costs 20% of a typical US animated episode, but it was more like 2%. The goal was to create generic animation in fairly high quality, but with limited emotions on display, so that the footage could be used repeatedly in many, many episodes with no additional investment. They wanted a wide variety of scripts, but they wanted to reuse every other element as much as possible. It's like the mirror universe of the Hallmark Channel, where they want to use one script with a wide variety of performers and locations. This is why a lot of the actors overly emote in dialogue. That's what they were directed to do, because the actual animated versions wouldn't show those emotions. This show also introduces the life support belts, which Roddenberry wanted to use on the live-action show, but couldn't due to the expense of them. They finally appear here because it was cheaper to trace existing animation and draw a belt or four than it was to animate spacesuits. Just one of the differences between animation and live-action. So all that said, we are down to focusing on this specific episode. This story feels like it belongs in the Trek canon. It was a Saturday morning cartoon that didn't pander to the audience, showing more respect for viewer intelligence than other animation for adults, such as the Flintstones in its later seasons. It even keeps up with some science. Spock should have known that the spacecraft drained energy from its surroundings when the temperature registered as absolute zero. The vacuum of space is more like 2.7 degrees Kelvin, which is negative 270.5 degrees Celsius, or negative 454.8 degrees Fahrenheit if you insist on using a temperature scale based on an accident of language combined with one family's recipe for pickle brine. The energy for that 2.7 degree Kelvin cosmic microwave background radiation had to have gone somewhere. Similarly, this negative mass star, negative mass is not a confirmed thing, but there is some debate about whether or not antimatter would have negative mass and therefore fall up. We can't create antimatter in any quantity large enough to actually measure the force of gravity on it. So it'll be a while before we get a definite answer to that question. But once you get past the production values, it's an idea that could have easily been made into an episode of the live-action series. With the possible exception of a somewhat haunting ending, this new life, which their mission requires them to seek out, and has been understandably lonely drifting alone for 300 million years, gets abandoned by this crew. A different closing narration about sending back a specialty science ship to seek a way to establish safe contact would have felt more fitting for the future Roddenberry had imagined, in my opinion, than just saying, okay, well, we saved ourselves, we stranded it, and now we're just leaving. Anyway, this time around, I've decided to join you in your episode ratings, so I give Beyond the Farthest Star a 4 out of 5. Valiant first effort. Or, actually... Valiant fourth effort. Filmation has a habit of recognizing that a lot of shows go through growing pains in their initial production, so they would make the pilot episode, which is the one that's used to sell the show to networks, the fourth or fifth in a production cycle, so that they'd work out most of the kinks and have stronger product to show off. They would do the same with most of their shows. Anyway, that's it for this week, guys, and we'll be back for yesteryear. Lane had a, had a lot of opinions on this one and, and a lot of memories. Um, he, you know, he rated it higher than any of us. Even even Dave's 3.75 pales in comparison. Uh, I, I, I like his analysis on the, the science, which is kind of cool because, you know, it's, again, it's an animated show and you wouldn't think it would bring us into such deep thought. Uh, I like his background as far as the uh, animation and that type of thing. I, I think uh, this message adds a lot of thought to our show. Uh 
And as as we said, even though they don't have the narration at the end about following up, I do believe that it would just pretty be pretty much standard that they would have. Uh, you could have easily had a follow up episode to this where there is some sort of contact made, and you know what the ramifications of that are. Uh, and if the show had lasted more than one and a half seasons, perhaps you know we would have gotten one. I don't know. What do you guys think? I was told there wouldn't be physics and math. Thank you. All right, well, it's deep thoughts like that that help us, there, Bill. Not the only one that had a thought. I know, and it, got, it was it was lonely for three hundred million years. <laughs> I don't think following up on this one in particular would have gone over well for uh, an animated series. I mean, what are you going to have a ship come back with scientists who are going to try and discuss this thing's issues? Well, it would depend on how you wrote it. Obviously, you know, you'd have to you'd have to come up with some sort of a. Uh, storyline where uh, I, I, I think, especially, you know, you're, you're dealing with animated and you don't did not want to pander to a young audience but you also, you know, because they clearly wanted to do things more intelligently but it also is a Saturday morning animated cartoon so you do want to have some element where it's going to appeal to that audience just the same uh, so, I don't know, I, th- I think I might have wanted to, if you know, if I were in the writer's room and we were talking about where to go with this, uh, you know, considering a sequel I think I would have gone perhaps with some other thing threatening the existence of this creature and Starfleet rescuing it somehow and then using that to start some sort of a diplomatic connection with it. Hmm. I think you could have made an interesting story that way. Well, if it was done today, they would just go back and blow up the planet. That's what I was thinking. Kill it! Kill it! We've rescued it. It still tries to take over the ship. Blow it up. Now, we are not going to have an email sequence during this show because we expect to have all of our episodes recorded before the first one actually airs. Uh, So what I would suggest is if people want to email us, send in your comments to the listentotheprofits at gmail.com mailbox. And once we get to to the end of this series, you know, perhaps we'll do an email episode. Ooh, that's, I forgot about. Oh, sorry, I just saw Aunt Andy's picture. I forgot about the cat lady. Uh, yeah, she shows up live. Oh yeah. So that, that, she that didn't. Be, what are we doing? Lower decks. What are we doing? Talk to me. She's in lower decks. No, well, one of her race is in lower oh, decks. See, now I've got to go watch lower decks. You don't have to. I've watched eight of them so far. I've smiled once. Oh jeez. There's a good Chief O'Brien gag in one of the episodes. That's what made me smile. Well, the, you are uh, English. I thought, you know, I, honestly, I thought the last episode lip. was very good. I haven't got to the last one yet. I've had to suffer through the other nine. I thought it, I thought it improved in quality as it went along, and I thought by by the time you got to six, seven, eight, you know, in there, I thought it was fairly harmless entertainment. I think the problem. I didn't think it was it is, suffering through it. Go ahead. The less they focus on Mariner, the more I enjoy the show. Unfortunately, she's the lead character. Well. Let me know when you when you get to the end and tell me what you think. Okay, okay. So that'll do it for Beyond the Farthest Star. But what are we doing next time? Next time on an all new episode of whatever the hell we decide to call this show, Mr. Spock must return to his homeland and save himself as a child in yesteryear. Captain's Log Supplemental. When we were in the time vortex, something appears to have changed the present as we know it. No one aboard recognizes Mr. Spock. Who's he, Jim? I don't know what's going on, but the first officer of this ship will be treated with respect. Captain, I assure you no one has ever treated me otherwise. Who are you? Well, I thought sure you'd know Thalen by now, Jim. He's been your first officer for five years. The wife was killed in a shuttle accident at Lunaport on her way home to Earth. Ambassador Sarek has not remarried. The son. What was his name and age when he died? Spock, age seven. I wish to visit the planet Vulcan. Thirty Vulcan years past. Which is canon in every version of Star Trek. It's canon, and it's probably the most highly regarded episode of this series. Hmm. Seems a bit weird they held that one off till second, but okay. Well, it, it's almost a shame that it's second, though, because it's the most highly regarded episode, and we're getting it out of the way very early. Yeah, well. Anyway, 
we'll see you all then. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye. Okay. Oh, wait. I guess I can't do Kapla. Trek is based upon Star Trek, created by Gene Roddenberry, and is a Two Two Freaks presentation. It's hosted by Andrew Leyland, Paul Spataro, Dave Pascarella, Bill Robinson, and produced and guest hosted on occasion by J. David Wheaton. All music and clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This is a review show and as such protected under fair use. Yeah, let's go with that. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Toon Trek. Who's, do- who's doing the first intro and... Synopsis. Oh, I oh shit! Yeah, yeah, I didn't even thought I'd hear that crap. Because <laughs> you could do a fake out intro where you make people think we're going to talk about lower decks. <clears throat> oh yeah. Oh, All right. So why do you do it, Andy? Oh, well, that, that means I have to make it up on the spot, man. If I'd known, I'd have written something. Yeah. Well, you know what? You're, you're British. You should be good at this. <laughs> <laughs>